0: You've uh, probably been wondering just where the heck is that Bible geek? Well, hold up like everybody else during this time of the viral apocalypse, uh, though it's uh, really no different uh, for me uh, from what it usually is, since I'm kind of a hermit and a recluse anyway, so well, what the heck. But it's been a while. I've been doing a lot of writing and, and uh, editing and so forth. I have to juggle all these things. Uh, But uh, I'd like to, uh, oh, oh, by the way, I should just point out one thing uh, in connection with the uh, the big plague going on. uh, The other night I heard uh, Tucker Carlson interview uh, um, apparently some famous Presbyterian minister, and he says, can you offer any words of comfort for uh, the people that are worried about the the coronavirus, etc.? And I thought what he had to say, I mean, you might guess I would feel this way, but I just thought it was a lot of wind and hokum. There was this stuff that uh, we've got to keep in mind that God is working in this. And uh, sometimes he's not working to save us from adversity, but he's working within the bad things. And I thought, what the heck is that supposed to mean? Well, of course, it means anything you want. It's the old bait and switch thing. Uh, God's gonna keep an eye on us. He that uh, guardeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. So you can be sure nothing bad will happen to you. But uh, when it does, God's working through that too. What? What is he? Some? Are you a rat in a Skinner box or something? I mean, there's it's just empty uh, rhetoric. And uh, in the uh, in the end, uh, nothing is promised. Uh, from God, and uh, that's one of the big reasons I should think there isn't any provident deity. You may feel differently, but I just thought this, that's what this guy was saying, though he didn't seem to realize it, Uh, just a lot of fustian, a lot of cant, and I don't mean Immanuel. Well, okay, let's say we take a look at some of those nifty questions. Uh, here's one. What do you make of the young man in the loincloth, uh, also known as the naked fugitive, present at Jesus' arrest? Uh, this is from Matthias Malensky. Uh, well, uh, he isn't depicted wearing a loincloth. It's uh, a sindone, which means a sheet. Uh, the same word uh, used for burial sheets, uh, but not exclusively for that, so the guy's just wearing a nightshirt, basically, so who the heck's he supposed to be? Well, of course, one favorite but desperate identification by a fundamentalist apologist is that this is Mark the evangelist himself, saying I was there.' Uh, I just there's no way that that there are all sorts of reasons for thinking this was not an eyewitness document, uh, even necessarily any kind of a historical document. And to say it's Mark uh, winking to the reader, I I don't buy it. Um, There are uh, other theories that I think are a bit better. One of them is that it was Simon Peter that he ran off uh, so as not to get captured by the uh, the squad of soldiers but then he followed along at a distance and uh, his uh record at the scene is not so sterling, right? Because it makes him a coward who, once somebody surmises that, in fact, he was with Jesus, he says, "Ah, Jesus? Jesus who? Never heard of him. Uh, Well, that would kind of fit here, right? Uh, He he did hang on uh, uh, following the the crowd to see what would happen, but it would fit if he were the one that uh, beat it. Um, That could be Though I have to admit, it would seem to me that uh, it would identify him if it were Peter or any other character we're supposed to know from the book. So, who was it? Well, uh, my favorite theory, and it's not completely worked out, is that this is the same young man in the uh, in the empty tomb. Remember, it doesn't say in Mark that he's an angel, right? He's just a a so young man, and he's wearing a linen sindon. Now, that might have something to do with the fact that he was... Uh, um, Uh, in a a tomb, right? And that would be, I guess, the appropriate dress. But does that mean he was the risen Christ? Uh, I doubt that because, I mean, that's not out of the question. And I think that Matthew thought that might be the point. I think Matthew has split the character into the risen Christ and an angel. He, He explicitly says angel. He divides up what Mark had the angel say into um, speech of the the angel at the tomb and then Jesus says the rest of it so I don't think he knew which was which and given his propensity to double everything like the two demoniacs, the two uh, donkeys the two blind men etc that he, well he certainly seems to have done that but that doesn't tell us what Mark intended um, just to keep the scorecard straight uh, Luke says there were two men, and John says two angels. Uh, why would you, in if you knew Mark's story, why would you infer that it was an angel? Well, because, uh, well, I don't know if this is because is the right word, but uh, note that in a bunch of the apocryphal um, gospels and acts and so forth, angels appear as young men. And, uh, you know, that could be what Mark thinks already, and I assume that's what John and uh, Matthew took it to mean. Uh, Looked like a young man, but uh, in the Acts of John, when James and John see Jesus for the first time at the Lake of Galilee, one of them sees him as a young, beardless man, and uh, the other sees him as an old man, which is kind of docetic. Uh, But... uh, I tend to think that uh, that uh, it's supposed to be the same guy who shows up at the tomb and knows what has happened and tells uh, the, the women to tell the disciples to go meet Jesus in Galilee because that's where he's headed. He left the tomb. We, we We're not told when. Right, it says that uh, Sunday was the day they discovered uh, the, the empty tomb, but it doesn't tell us anything about when he supposedly rose. I'd I'd like to hear more speculation about that. But uh, and and if you want to throw in the secret gospel of Mark, and after years of thinking about it, I still incline toward thinking that it's a modern fake. But who knows? Uh, it, it if it is. Uh, an authentically ancient text, and even originally part of mark and there is a case to be made for that then this would this would tell us who the young man in the linen sheet was, or it might uh because remember um Jesus is called to uh to raise from the dead these people's younger brother. Uh, and, uh, he's, he's sort of, uh, made like the rich young ruler. Well, uh, they, Jesus goes to the tomb and there's a shout from the tomb and, uh, Jesus is, uh, he raises him from the dead and then that, that night he initiates him into the mystery, which means initiation, initiation, right, uh, into the kingdom of God. Uh, and the, the kid comes to him wearing only a linen sindon. Uh, and and if you i think even two instances is enough but if that's in there you really got to do some explaining if it is not supposed to be the same character we don't hear his name well so what is the point of his role well he may uh simply be joe disciple Uh, possibly identified with the reader rather than the writer, because uh, in Mark, clothing is used as a metaphor for discipleship. Uh, The way John the Baptist is dressed, the way Jesus' uh, clothing uh, becomes brilliant white on the Mount of Transfiguration, and uh, and so on and so on. There are other instances. I'm too cloudy-brained to think of at the moment. But if you say, okay, this guy became a disciple of, of Jesus and of the kingdom of God through baptism, as in secret mark, he, that explains why he's following Jesus as far as, as the Garden of Gethsemane. But when when the arresting party comes, he freaks out and makes a run for it. He was so close to being captured that they, they managed to grasp his sin don, his, his sheet, and he left it in their, uh, uh, hands and didn't go back for it, so he, uh, ran off. Uh, oh, yeah, another one of these instances is the Garrison demoniac, right? At first, when they see him, he's nude, but then once he's delivered of his demons, he wants to follow Jesus and he's clothed. Where'd they get the clothing? Did one of the disciples say, well, what the heck, I'll just hide behind Andrew here, you can take my suit. Well, it's artificial, and that kind of implies we've got something that is purely literary here. And then... If that's him in the empty tomb, that sort of shows that uh, if it's kind of equivalent to in the Gospel of John, Peter, who was denied Jesus, is reconciled to him as of the resurrection. And if you're in the same boat, you can do the same thing. And uh, so he's like, a he, he has no name given any more than John's beloved disciple. Uh, and that's because, perhaps, that that's supposed to be you. Like the prod, the elder son, uh, the elder, I'm sorry, the el, yeah, the elder brother of the prodigal is supposed to be the reader. The rich young ruler is supposed to be the reader. Nicodemus is supposed to be the reader. Do you find yourself in this spot? Well, here's what to do. And interestingly, we're not told what any of those three did. Right? We always think, well, that rich young ruler He uh, he wanted to follow Jesus But uh, Jesus said, well, it cost you You're going to have to give up your money Give it to the poor <laughs> Well, maybe I'll find another rabbi now, It doesn't say that It says he went away sad uh, Because he's got to give up all he owns Not a happy prospect But we're, Jesus said, go and sell the stuff So maybe that's what he went to do uh, sort of uh crestfallen as, as I would be if Jesus said, you gotta give up all your New Testament and theology books and worse yet your action figures. Thought, oh my God. Uh well okay um so uh he uh yeah so um we've got a kind of discipleship paradigm. Oh yeah the elder brother the father Appeals to him to forgive his his younger brother, the prodigal. Does he? We're not told because it's leaving you in that position. And uh, Nicodemus too, uh, believing Jesus is a prophet sent by God. That's not enough. Uh, you've got to be baptized. Well, did Nicodemus do that? Uh, we're uh, we're not told because it's really a challenge cast at your feet. So I kind of think that he is, an, this character is only marginally, only barely a character at all. He is rather an actant. He's a kind of narrative role personified. And uh, so that that's my thinking. I know there are other theories about who this was. I think there's a docetic theory that that it's it's Jesus himself you know another version of an interpretation of barabbas right since in old latin manuscripts of matthew's gospel pilate asks the crowd who do you want me to release to you jesus uh, Barabbas or Jesus called Christ? In other words, two guys named Jesus, very common name, Yeshua, right? Uh, well, which one? Uh, the one called Christ or the one called Bar Abbas? Now, that is a real name, but it happens to mean son of the father. And some have suggested, very plausibly in my opinion, that what, uh, Uh, it it said in probably the original reading of Matthew, uh, it was preserving an old docetic version that Jesus, the son of the father, the real one, was let go he didn't get crucified Uh, and uh, then uh, Jesus called Christ in other words, the so-called Christ, the one thought to be uh, our Jesus, he's crucified in his place that's how Basilides, I believe it was, understood uh, the Simon of Cyrene story in Mark, uh, where um, it says that uh, they brought Jesus uh, to, to uh, Golgotha, but uh, they, they got uh, another guy in the crowd named Simon from Cyrene to carry the cross, and then it says, there they crucified him, Well, grammatically, that him, that that pronoun him, should refer back to the last person named, which would be Simon. And so, uh, I don't know that that's wrong. I mean, it seems kind of contrived until you think about it a bit, and you know that that Simonian Gnosticism held that uh, it was uh, Simon who was crucified, though he only seemed to feel pain, a kind of double-docetism and uh so this might be another one where um where it meant to say that the real Jesus escaped and his garment was left behind, namely his worthless physical form uh, that sounds kind of like uh, one of the apocalypses of peter and uh so on so there's a lot of interesting theories about that. I guess you pays your money and you takes your choice, but of course, once you have. You have no right to be dogmatic about it. That's why I kind of couch these things carefully, saying this is my favorite theory. This makes the most sense to me. But that doesn't uh, prove anything. It's not like a shell game where you take your guess and you find out immediately if it's right or wrong. It doesn't work that way. Okay. Uh, thanks, Matthias. This is Nathan. We've got all these great Bible names here. Uh, I have yet to have a question from an Arfaxad, ad, but I, I have a hunch now that I've said that I probably will in the near future. Anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, Nathan says, I'm an avid listener of your podcast, audiobooks, and reader of your work. I may be one of your few conservative Christian followers. Uh, I hope they're not just a few, but uh, I, I, by the way, I never get... Uh, attempts to refute me and call me a heretic or anything—I've virtually never had anybody in a debate. I, I, when the audience asks questions, I've never had. Well, I can think of one time when I was confronted indignantly by somebody, but it's—it's uh, it's just surprisingly rare, and I'm glad of that. I pre- much prefer dialogue. Okay, so uh, I'm glad you're—you're. You're, uh, conservative Christian listener Uh, that's great, I I welcome you okay, Uh, Nathan goes on to say I'm currently reading The Amazing Colossal Apostle and have a question for you regarding a chapter on Paul and Simon Magus are you making the argument that as Simon Magus is a cipher for Paul in the pseudo-Clementine literature uh, which insofar as they record the Kerygma of Peter uh, an older underlying Ebionite source that they, they represent second-century views, and Acts, being in your view a mid-second-century document, when it mentions Simon Magus, he can also be seen in Acts uh, as such a cipher for Paul. Uh, yeah, that that is what I'm saying, and here I'm following F.C. Bauer, and Nathan goes on to that. He says, and by your citation of Bauer. Are you saying he also saw Simon Magus in Acts as a cipher for Paul? It's a fascinating argument. I've tried to look through Bauer to see this, but all I can see is that Bauer sees Simon Magus in the Pseudo-Clementines, that is, the homilies and the recognitions, as a cipher for Paul, but not in the canonical Acts, unless I'm mistaken. Could you please clarify? Not looking for any gotcha at all. Genuinely would like to sign summarize this argument from bauer if he is making it yeah nathan this is uh, actually in a different book I- i'm sure you're thinking of uh, paul the apostle of jesus christ uh, the the major book uh, by uh, fc bauer but he has another goodie called the church history of the first 3 centuries where he covers some of the same ground, and that's the one where he says that, yeah, what's true of the pseudo-Clementines is true equally of Acts. And in fact, it's the pseudo-Clementines that uh, that uh, sort of tip us off to what's going on in Acts. Now, what did he see as the compelling parallel in, in the Acts story uh, when they're in Samaria and uh, Philip comes and sort of Nudges Simon off stage, and then Peter comes to replace Philip, because it's got to be an apostle officially to to baptize these people and have Well, they they were baptized, but to receive the Holy Spirit, uh, and even Simon uh, converts. And he he approaches Peter because Peter and John have been laying hands on the baptized Christian Samaritans, and now they receive the Holy Spirit, which they had not done uh, when uh, baptized by uh, Philip. Uh, and uh, how, what was he, what was of interest to him? Well, keep in mind he was a magician, and he said, uh, "I." He says, "How much?" for you to show me how to do this, so that on whomever I lay my hands, he'll receive the Holy Spirit. Well, it's obvious, as Pentecostals have rightly seen, that this clearly implies that the um, people receiving the Spirit were speaking in tongues— uh, the ecstatic glossolalic utterance, which is explicitly mentioned elsewhere in Acts when people receive the Spirit, right? And uh, it's certainly implied here. And so, he, boy, those are some results. That's pretty pyrotechnic. I'd love to be able to do that. How much would you charge to teach me that? And as J.B. Phillips matchlessly translated it, Peter says to him, to hell with you and your money, uh, literally, may you, along with your money, perish. But you know, that's what he means. He says because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money, he says I foresee uh, you bound in the chains of gall and bitterness. Uh, you have no part or share in this this ministry. Uh, what What's going on there? Well, Bauer said, you know, this kind of sounds like another version of the uh, attempt of Paul to gain apostolic recognition, as in Galatians. Oh, he tells a story where uh, he he was recognized as legitimate by the pillar apostles, James, Cephas, and John, with the proviso that he would bring tribute from his many congregations in the Mediterranean world to give to the Jerusalem church. Uh, you know Why would that be, uh, well because, uh, you know, Luke pictures them as having a kind of socialist commune, and that'll make everybody poor every time. And apparently it had, and they needed an influx of cash from outside. Uh, And uh, according to various hints, it didn't go too well once Paul actually brought the money. Uh, And uh, like he says in Romans, I'm bringing the bucks to Jerusalem. Pray for me that they'll accept it. Uh, whoa! Uh, why would he say that unless trouble had been brewing also uh, yet another version of it appears in Acts, Luke had various versions. This didn't want to leave any of them out and uh in in this one, it's uh disguised as Paul and Barnabas. I forget Paul and Silas, Paul and somebody. Let's say Robin sidekick uh, to uh, bring relief from uh, Queen Helena of Adiabene in Asia Minor. To she had converted to Judaism, and uh, they. Uh, she gave a huge amount of uh, of money for food to be bought during a famine in the reign of Claudius, and Paul was to administer the gift to Jerusalem. So there's... Uh, I even think the thing in 2 uh, Corinthians uh, about a public dispute between Peter and Paul, a pretty nasty one, uh, I think that is another version of, of the dispute in Galatians, where... Paul uh, chews him out as being a hypocrite because he started... Uh, sharing meals with unclean Gentiles but as soon as the uh, observers from Jerusalem showed up he said oh well I guess I sat at the wrong table I'm going kosher and he says you hypocrite etc so uh, this kind of echoes and bounces around but this the parallel with Galatians uh, uh, Seem with Paul is he going to be recognized or not he uh, figures he can be if he makes a monetary gift. I, I think that, who knows, right? But I think that's got to be right. And uh, I think Bauer admitted that you wouldn't really be ready to recognize that if you hadn't seen uh, the, the uh, similar version in the pseudo-Clementines. And I think he's right. Uh, it's well worth studying. If you can get a hold of uh, the church history of the first three centuries, that, that would be real handy in your quest. So, uh, send me another question, Nathan, about anything. I don't, uh, you know, I don't mind people challenging uh my views at all. So, thanks for writing. Uh, ah, our old pal Michael Goodpasture, who uh, very generously um it, uh paid for me and Carol to uh join him at a Rush concert. Uh, when there were such things of course that's over now since the tragic death of the great neil peart Um, but uh, it was i've seen a few of their concerts and that was the last one i'll be able to see Uh, and uh, thanks to michael a great guy and this guy's tattoos uh, you gotta see him. He has this. Well, one sleeve is a bunch of uh, Rush album covers or elements therefrom, all in a collage. It's astounding. Uh, and uh, the other one is, is incredible, too. It's, it shows Jehovah spearing Leviathan, the sea monster. Holy mackerel, that's what I call a Bible geek. Anyway. Here's uh, here's what Michael says. Uh, Recently in my local newspaper, there appeared a letter to the editor written by a man who once pastored the Assembly of God church I attended as a child. In the letter, he used Deuteronomy 22.5 to argue that transgender people were being disobedient to God. As someone that moved in Pentecostal holiness and conservative Anabaptist circles for about a decade, I'm very familiar with a passage. Uh, In the RSV it says, A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. The person that wrote the letter went out of his way to say that the verse didn't mean women couldn't wear pants, though that was precisely the way in which I and those I associated with used it. Uh, The particular argument I and others made was that pants essentially amounted to a girding of the loins, which seems to be a practice associated with battle and hard labor, things which pertain to men. I'm sure that sounds very strange and forced to most people, but I could recount similar interpretations far more out there. Uh, I once knew Wesley and holiness people that wouldn't wear short sleeves because God made Adam and Eve coats of animal skins according to hol uh, uh yeah uh, according to the King James version, and there's no such thing as a short sleeve coat. Uh, uh, By the way, of course, there is, right, in the Bible, uh, at least according to one uh, legitimate translation, the coat that um, uh, uh, Jacob gave to Joseph was either a a multicolored coat, different I guess that means like stripes of different colored material sewn together, or a coat with long sleeves. And in the latter case, which is probably more likely even than the multicolored dream coat, uh, that, that's supposed to be a mark of special honor. It makes it more of a robe. And so uh, it, it appears that uh, there, there were long-sleeved uh, coats, if you will I mean, that that is called a coat uh, The um, It's funny how um, Well, I guess Anabaptists You know, they're very Mennonites uh, Dunkers United Brethren uh, Hutterites uh, Amish and all that They're very nonconformist, Right? They don't want to dress in worldly Ways. More power to them uh, I say uh, once I saw a bunch of, uh, I think probably church of the brethren, uh, people in a highway rest stop, a whole bunch of them, 10 or 12, uh, and they had their bonnets and broad brimmed hats and all that. I was tempted. I didn't, uh, to go up to them and say, this is great. Please don't change. Uh, I, I love seeing, uh, stuff like that. Um, that's one reason I always get a kick also out of seeing Salvation Army bands perform in public. That's right out of the 19th century, which I love so much. Uh, anyhow. Um, so, yeah, I I, uh, and, and there's there's like a. A ban on we- women wearing jewels and so on because of a uh, passage in 1 Peter that women are to adorn themselves with modesty and virtue, not with uh, you know, jewels and fancy hair and all that. Uh, but that, my view kind of changed on that uh, when I read uh, an essay showing. That almost all of 1 Peter is about baptism and was probably originally a baptismal sermon. I go into that in um, uh, Holy Fable, Volume Three, the uh, the Epistles and the Apocalypse, Undistorted by Faith. Well, in that it said women are to leave aside their jewelry and stuff during the baptism i mean sometimes people men and women went through the water naked uh and the uh, rebirth imagery and so forth so sometimes it doesn't mean what you'd think it uh it means but uh let's see back to to michael the archangel he says while i'm confident now that this verse has nothing to do with ladies wearing britches I know you were tempted to say bitches and britches, but you didn't. Yeah, I'm equally confident it has nothing to do with transgender people. I've read, uh, whoops, I, there goes my screen. I've read some commentators and say the part about men wearing women's garments has to do with disguising themselves for the purpose of committing adultery. And I'll sneak it around, and the bit about women putting on items pertaining to a man has to do uh, with the Worship of Venus or Ashtaroth, which involved wearing armor. Um, among those who say this, uh, Adam Clark and Matthew Henry is pretty old commentary. Commentators. I've heard you mention several times the ancient taxonomies that ancient Israel subscribed to, and I've read Mary Douglas's essay that you've recommended in her book Purity and Danger on the Leviticus Abominations. In fact, that essay is The Abominations of Leviticus. Everybody who's interested in this ought to read that. And my inclination is that this verse has to do with something similar. Uh yeah, let me pause here again. Yeah, that is exactly right. I mean, the, why can uh, men not wear skirts and women can't wear pants? And I suspect that is what the Deuteronomic author intended. Uh, the The reason was that uh, you have to be consistent with the stereotype, and that governed what you could eat and not eat. Right, uh, you. Uh, you could eat animals that uh, had cloven hooves and chewed the cud. That is, you know, they were chewing the, the grass, which is sort of stiff cellulose. Their enzymes would break it down to some degree, but not completely. And, and it would come back up uh, into the mouth to be chewed again, maybe another time. And there were a, a, the cow would have a series of stomachs to process it chewing the cud, okay, uh, and, uh, I had a friend named, with well, a last name, Cudworth, I was wondered what the heck that had to do with it, but, uh, the, uh, and it had cloven hooves, so beef, yeah, why not, uh, but pigs, that's another story, Porky was safe, uh, because though pigs had cloven hooves, Darn, they didn't chew the cud, uh, so you couldn't have it. Like some people say, oh no, no, it was because you could get trichinosis. The the Bible knows nothing about that. Uh, I mean, I guess people could have seen through trial and error and observation that uh, that that you might get trichinosis, but I don't think in the history of medicine we're aware of anybody knowing that. Uh, and it seems to me, it, as Mary Douglas Says, it fits so well into The general thing, you couldn't eat lobster uh, Or shellfish Because uh, they weren't true Fish, like right? Charlie tuna was, and there's a guy With a suicide, a uh, death wish uh, But uh, Fish were alright, because They 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 moved Through the water with fins And had scales uh, Which all true fish do But uh, shrimp, uh, crayfish, lobsters, uh, no, no, they move through the water but they got no fins, they have no scales. Uh so can't eat them. I mean there was no thought that that would make you sick, right? No. Uh it violated the the two strict categories of creation. Uh and so God had written them off and you couldn't mix types of cloth you couldn't let different types of of grazing animals feed together uh and uh, and so on i think the um the uh it has to do with whether you can cross categories or not and it's applied to 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 sex uh, you had to cross the male-female border, and you could do that. That could be sanctified by a ritual, though we don't really know what their ritual of marriage was. Nobody bothered recording it. Um, but uh, you you couldn't cross the adult-child line. Uh, that would be incest and pederasty, and that's forbidden, and that's no doubt why. Uh, but you did have to cross it, oh incest right you couldn't uh, have sex with uh your siblings or your parents god forbid and uh that's because if those were lines you you couldn't category lines you couldn't cross but what about homosexuality of course it never mentions um uh female homosexuality lesbianism it doesn't even come up in the bible i know what you're thinking uh, Romans 1 uh, but I don't think that's what that's about I think that's about bestiality uh, because uh, Levit- Leviticus forbids women having sex with animals and I think the, the reference is to that in Romans but you see there's another one bestiality uh, going on a date with your goat you know you can't do that that's that's crossing the, the boundaries but what about um, at least male homosexuality you got to cross that boundary, sanctified by the ritual of marriage, and you're, you're too close to home. Uh, w- having sex with somebody of the same uh, orientation, the same gender, whatever the heck, I know those words have millions of uh, meanings these days. But, uh, excuse me, just getting rid of another demon. Um, and uh, so I, th- I think that has everything to do, as you surmise here, with transvestism. Uh, we don't know if I mean they have costume parties for Purim that possibly uh, couldn't have involved uh, a man dressing up as a woman, as, as even athletes do today. Though we don't know, I mean that any kind of festival is involves liminal behavior, boundary line behavior that you would ordinarily not do, but you can do in in connection with rites of passage and so on. But on the whole, I, I'm just sure you're right, transvestism uh, it would would be uh, outlawed because of that. Now, if you were in a different culture where men wore skirts like, you know, uh, a lot of ancient soldiers did, I don't think they had that in mind because they didn't dress that way. If you were in a culture where women had always worn pants, I think the a missionary trying to apply Leviticus would, would understand that there it would be wrong or ritually incorrect for a woman to wear a dress, right? But uh, what the biblical writers would have thought after a wholesale change in in dress, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure you you would have, uh, I'd love to know what uh, the rabbis have said about it. I'm sure they must have addressed that in all these uh, centuries. Uh, But does, does any of this apply to transgenderism? Well, it never actually comes up, but I I feel pretty darn sure that the Levitical or the scribal writers would have said, oh, no, that's an abomination. You can't uh, change the way God made you. You can't jump from male to female or vice versa. It, It just seems to me an inevitable extrapolation. And even then, it wouldn't necessarily be immoral. I always make this distinction uh, when uh, I talk about homosexuality. In the Old Testament, that occurs twice in the so-called holiness code within Leviticus, where it just deals with stuff like kosher food and all, all this other stuff with the categories. These transgressions, and that's a good word for this, like you're you're trespassing, you're going over the line, the category line, and uh, that renders you ritually unclean. And, in fact, that's the only kind of sin, and I think that was the original meaning of sin, a ceremonial transgression uh, that you can sacrifice for. If you murder somebody or, or commit adultery, you're not going to you know, kill a goat or a sheep and get out from under that. Um, that has something to do with, you know, why... In Hebrews, it says the sacrifice of Christ is better than that of animals and all that. Because presumably it does uh, eradicate all the uh, the moral sins. Um, yeah, so, uh, okay, let's see. Uh, finally, um, I, it's not that Michael's taken forever. It's that uh, a big mouth named me is... Uh, so. Uh, Don't blame him. He says, Also, the placement of this proscription seems odd. It is preceded by rules regulating a person's behavior toward the livestock of his neighbor and is followed by ancient fish and wildlife regulations regarding wild birds. Verse 5 seems out of place to me. Uh, What saith the geek? Well, some of the stuff is just not systematic. They probably, uh, as... um, oh, who was it? Was it Casaman? Or, or, uh, oh, boy, one of the big Old Testament scholars. Uh, They pointed out that these things are like grab bags of traditional law, and that's why there are like two or three versions of some laws. They're worded slightly differently, but they mean the same thing. Why are they all in there and in different places, different contexts? Well, uh, like some gospel passages, there's no real train of thought. I mean, we're lucky that there is as much as there is, and partly that's because of the the so-called Book of the Covenant in the 20s of uh, of Exodus is borrowed from the Code of Hammurabi. And uh, but it, I, it's just like an anomaly, uh, a anomaly, uh, a aporia. It's uh, doesn't there may, it may have just been left over, and they decided, oh well, let's stick it in here. But you know, maybe they had in mind the the no mixing, no abomination or confusion laws that had to do with uh, different types of animals being clean or unclean. Okay, now, um, this from Ostino and Verba hope I'm saying that right. Um, I have a question that has been bugging me for some weeks now. What is your view of speaking in tongues, hallelujah, as described in the epistles and acts? I know there is one specific example in acts of those baptized in the Holy Spirit with a flame over their heads, speaking to one another, each in their own language, with all, all, everybody at present, Uh, understanding despite being from different places. The interpretation of the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses is that every time speaking in tongues is mentioned, it is a repeat of the example in Acts, I suppose as a way for God to show off a miracle. However, we see these days Pentecostals and such speaking in tongues in a more incoherent way. Um, Let's see, here is the key detail that throws me off. In the other places where speaking in tongues is mentioned, a quote translator or interpreter is often also mentioned. Could it be that an interpreter is needed because the ones smitten with Scroller, uh, with the spirit really are babbling holy nonsense if we're talking about real languages here why would someone who doesn't understand the language a sermon is being given in even show up uh, which is what would necessitate such a miracle i don't see these situations turning up in the real world except as how the pentecostals interpret it what are the geeks thoughts I think you're right. Uh, it's not the same. Well, depending on how you interpret it, Acts isn't an example of the same thing, uh, but why is that? Well, there's in in 1 Corinthians especially, it's pretty clear that uh, the idea is not foreign languages. I mean, that, that could be included, because in chapter 13, you know, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, however, I think that means any kind of speech you can think of, it wouldn't matter if it were not loving. Um, but uh, looking at uh, 1 Corinthians and at the Pentecostal practice, it seems to me that, yeah, when you say the tongues of angels, that's uh, kind of pious way of saying that it is inspired gibberish like that of the oracle of delphi who sat over a a crack in the earth uh, and and um, volcanic gases would rise out of it at certain times she would inhale them and go into a mantic trance and uh, her assistant was the interpreter uh, she would be speaking gibberish, but he was inspired to not to translate it because it wasn't actually any language, but to uh, kind of do what Daniel did, right? He sees on the wall the hand uh, tracing out mene, Maine tekel, Upharsin. What the heck? That, that's in no language. I mean, it kind of sounds Hebrew, uh, but Daniel doesn't translate it. He interprets it. He says, what God is saying here is, "You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. you come up short right uh, well, that's apparently what it means in First Corinthians that they're speaking in the tongues of angels and not in other words, not mortal speech. And so an interpreter is not a translator. Uh, that would be kind of pointless. Uh, the interpreter is the one who gives the edifying sense of it, supposedly, right? Uh like any kind of divination, examining The tea leaves or the entrails of a sacrificed animal. There's no text to read there, but somehow the interpreter has a revelation as to what it's supposed to mean. And I think that is clearly the point of speaking in tongues, and it might even be in Acts 2, because it's far from clear that uh, the story means that each of the 120 Christians present were speaking separate foreign languages they had never learned. Like this guy's speaking uh, Ugaritic, that guy's speaking German, this one's Latin, that one's Greek, this one was uh, Swahili, uh, this one is Japanese. No, uh, it, it seems at least as likely uh, that uh, the miracle lay in a kind of automatic mass inspired interpretation, so that all the the pilgrims to Jerusalem from different countries heard all 120 speaking in the language of each pilgrim, Uh, so that if uh, you uh, were on the scene, you might have heard one of the, the visitors saying, aren't these guys all Galilean hicks? How'd they learn my language? What need would they have for for knowing uh, Latin or or something? Uh, And and the guy next to him says, you're crazy. Uh, You're the one that's nuts here. These guys are all speaking Russian. No, 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 they're all speaking American, Indian, whatever. Uh, I should know I'm one of them. Uh, Well, that's, uh, that seems to me more likely that God... uh, worked without a human mediator here and just caused them all to hear what he wanted them to hear, the gospel message in their own language. Uh, and so if that's the case, and, and it also implies that uh, some people there must have recognized that what the 120 were saying was unintelligible gibberish. They just didn't get the interpretations. Like here, well, yeah. Uh, and uh, they say Uh, these guys are all drunk, they're filled with new wine, and then Peter steps forward and says, these are not drunk, as you suppose, Uh, and and he explains it's the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Well, that does kind of imply that they seem to be uh, raving drunk, uh, unless you got the inside uh, stuff uh, supernaturally, telepathically, Uh, and, and... what the the outsiders who just don't get it say is just like what it says in 1 Corinthians 14. If everybody in your church service is speaking in tongues and some outsider who doesn't know what's going on happens to walk in, he's going to think you're all crazy. Well, that's just what happens in, in Acts chapter 2. So I personally think that, the, that glossolalia, speaking in tongues, is, like you say, uh, inspired nonsense, because it's not supposed to be a human language. It's the language of angels. So a real good and and exegetically important uh, question. Ah, Let's see. I see it's time for me to do what I should have done before and plug this thing in. Uh, Where's that socket? Okay, yeah, that ought to do the trick. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, So, yeah, I think that's what's going on. Again, no way to know unless we can invent a time machine or something. Uh, our pal Luther says, My question, when did people stop viewing the books that became the Bible as books written by people about God's interaction with the world and begin seeing them with some higher view of inspiration as God's own words? Well, I would say sometime in the second century, because... um the at least, if you're talking about Christian writings, uh, in the well, now if you're talking about Old Testament stuff, Philo of Alexandria, the great Jewish Platon, I guess what was he, uh, Middle Platonist philosopher, uh, he already is saying the writers of Scripture were just like flutes being played, uh, just like pen in, in hand of a scribe. that it was purely passive. Uh, But uh, whether the New Testament writers thought that, some of them probably did. uh, The the Gospel of John has Jesus say that at least his hearers figure that, quote, Scripture cannot be broken as if every line were an, an unalterable law uh so uh that's that's going on in the 1st and 2nd centuries but uh i believe origin is the first to think that for scripture to be a canon it has to be inspired and so the the obj- the job of someone excuse me trying to uh define a canon, is to discern which are the inspired books. Now, it looks like, slightly earlier, Christians like Irenaeus may have held a different view and, and thought, well, no, but these books are authoritative because of apostolic authorship. These guys knew what they were talking about because of the direct link with Jesus, but I believe um Clement of Alexandria, uh, or or at least his disciple Origen, said, no, nah, they're more than that. And, and one way you can tell is that Origen was a big allegorizer, right? You don't think that a book can have various levels of meaning in a single verse unless you think it's a kind of a magic book. Uh, that the Holy Spirit uh, was uh, smuggling these deeper messages. Sometimes you could explain the oddities and contradictions and errors in the narrative uh, by saying, well, you're supposed to notice the problems because that tips you off. This is one of those places where the real meaning is hidden deep, and you better learn how to look for it. So that certainly presupposes that the New and Old Testaments are verbally inspired. Now, in, in the New Testament, in the two Petrine letters, you've got uh, something like that. In First Peter, it says that the Old Testament prophets uh, were were prophesying of the great things to come in the wake of Jesus. Uh, and that they themselves knew that by, you know, prophetic clairvoyance, but that it, um, and to me, that implies that it's all like a product of the spirit, that they're giving information they couldn't possibly have known. Um, though, though technically, if you follow Thomas Aquinas on on this. There's a difference between inspiration and revelation. Inspiration might mean that the Holy Spirit subtly caused the writers to write what they uh, what He wanted them to. but it, it may be it was simply using certain source materials, oral traditions, uh, earlier documents often in the Deuteronomic history, Joshua Judges, Samuel, Kings, uh, they'll say, if you want to know more about this, take a look at the so-and-so book, uh, and the, the book of Yasher is quoted a couple of times, so uh, that that wasn't revelation exactly, they were just using historical source material, but of course they didn't quote the whole thing, they were just using bits of it, and Aquinas said, well, that's where the the uh, inspiration lay. It was more of an editorial kind of a thing. But there also is revelation. Uh, Like when John of Patmos is saying, oh, look at this, I saw these angels and uh, this throne and the Lamb and all that. Well, that would be uh, revelation. And uh, so it's sometimes difficult to tell, like if the author of 1 Peter had revelation or inspiration in mind. Uh, But in 2 Peter, which is, is, both of them are 2nd century works, I think, but if if anything was written in the 2nd century, it's 2 Peter. Because he refers to Paul's letters as a collection and says that some are misinterpreting them as they do the rest of the scriptures so this guy is living at a time when uh, paul's letters were collected and had become part of the scriptural canon uh, and uh that's uh that, that certainly implies given what they thought about the old testament canon that whoever second peter was believed that the pauline literature uh was uh, was inspired but uh, not all these letters, in fact, I don't think hardly any of the New Testament letters make such claims for themselves. Like Second Peter, is it? I think it's Second. there's is it 1 Peter? Where it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, or literally is God-breathed uh, and profitable for correction, instruction, uh, doctrine, reproof, and all that stuff. Uh, now that is about as strong as you can get uh with uh, a claim for uh, the divine origin virtually dictation but he doesn't say that about uh, his own writing right uh, there's no uh, canon list given in the bible and uh, I'm going to ha- I'm going to be talking with Derek Lambert on myth vision in a few days about this whole matter of who defined the canon and on what criteria so um <laughs> okay let me Um, Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Ostino goes on to say, it seems to me that the whole idea of wanting to preserve supposed eyewitnesses' accounts of Jesus means those people believed in the former. Uh, That is, that they were just written... by people, right, not inspired, Um, because if God wanted to speak his own words via inspiration or revelation, he could just as easily breathe those words into Max and Jerry as into Matthew and John. This is actually why the modern apologist's insistence on eyewitness authorship actually seems silly to me, based on my understanding of their beliefs, it's unnecessary, Yeah, uh, the thing, the reason they do that, ultimately, I don't think they would care if it was Max and Jerry, but uh, because they just have this dogmatic belief that it's all inspired, infallible, inerrant, etc. But the people they're witnessing to obviously do not think so though if they get converted to the kind of Christianity that the apologists embrace, they soon will, right, as part of the package. Well, now that you're a Christian, of course you're going to believe in the Trinity, the substitutionary atonement, the inspiration of Scripture, so they're just going to accept it as part of the party line. But before they do... Uh, the apologist has to come up with some other way of making the outsider, the unbeliever, begin to take at least the Gospels as seriously as believers do based on their belief in inspiration. Uh, If you can say, well, these are completely accurate even though mere human beings wrote them because they saw and heard Jesus. And there's no reason to think anything would have intervened to screw it up. And, of course, these arguments are ludicrous. Uh, I think less and less of them as the years go by. Uh, But that's why they do it. And uh, I I always say, well, if you are an evangelical apologist and you say that, oh, well, uh, well, there couldn't have been any... um, Early Christians attributing to the earthly Jesus something that the heavenly Christ supposedly said through a prophet on earth, a Christian prophet in Corinth or whatever. And I always say, well, what would be the problem? you're You're drawing a distinction the early Christians wouldn't have made because they were believers. Hey, well whether Jesus is in, is in heaven or on earth, if it comes from him, uh, good enough for me, but no, the apologist. Uh, won't accept that, and I think that the the secret here is that apologists are trying to buttress their own faith. Uh, they secretly realize how lame it is to just assume dogmatically that these are magical writings, and uh, they're trying to come up with a, a way they can satisfy their historical conscience, their scholarly conscience. But, of course, they're kidding themselves, and and often an apologist, uh, as I did, uh, sees through it. Uh, Okay. Um, One uh, last one. Um, Mark in Bandung, Indonesia. says, I'm not sure how Dr. Albert Schweitzer, uh, his modest autobiography, found its way here to Bandung, Indonesia, but I was glad it did. What was the good doctor's contribution to biblical scholarship, and how is he now regarded? Oh boy, that's that's really fascinating. Uh, Schweitzer, as a New Testament scholar, was uh, big into the historical Jesus uh, question. And in his book, The Quest of the Historical Jesus, he, uh, he does two great things. He surveys virtually everything written by scholars trying to reconstruct the historical Jesus and uh, and he shows how in almost every case they uh, came up with a Jesus that was just like them uh, that basically a Jesus who was either a Roman Catholic, essentially one of them even said Jesus mustn't spoken Latin, uh, or a liberal Protestant, uh, or just the Protestant Christ, and he he shows this in uh, cringeworthy detail, uh, in case after cases he goes through an amazing number of books, uh, and uh, and shows you know how how fatuous they are. Though he, he says they're all interesting and real works of scholarship, but, you know, it's like uh, somebody said uh, each one of these scholars, is, I think it was Franz Overbeck or somebody, said that uh, they're, each one of these scholars is like a man looking down a well and seeing his own reflection but not recognizing it. Uh, hey down there and if 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 it echoes he thinks the guy's responding he says that's kind of what happened here everybody's making Jesus over in his own image uh, and, uh, but the, suppose Jesus was not at all what they expect uh, suppose Jesus was something that would embarrass modern Christianity conservative, liberal, whatever he says well I'm afraid he was and uh he Schweitzer sided with uh uh with uh, Johannes Weiss uh against um William Vreda. Vreda said uh he did an exhaustive study of Mark and the book was called The Messianic Secret uh, uh Messiah, geheimness or something like that. And uh, in it, he said, look, look, Mark is not simply an unvarnished account of somebody's memories of this guy. Look closely and you will see the artistry in this. And it's a rule of thumb that the more literary the narrative is, there's no real reason to posit a historical basis for it. And it might have some basis in history, but the problem is uh, there's no way to know. And uh, so he says the, the scholar has to remain agnostic We just cannot know because the Gospels, beginning with Mark, are not that kind of literature, so forget it. Um, Weiss had a a different view. He said, no, I think we can see what the historical Jesus was like, though you do have to peel away dogma that had been... uh, that had accumulated uh, by the time the Gospels were written, it's pretty clear that Jesus was a preacher, like what is uh, Bart Ehrman called him, an apocalyptic prophet of the New Age. He thought the kingdom of God was soon at hand. Everybody better repent now, uh, because it's not going to be long before the sky rolls up like a window shade and uh, the angels come to earth bringing God's throne, the books are open Opened, the sinners will be cast into hell the righteous will be given the garments of the resurrection body etc etc that's going to happen real soon and you damn well better make sure you're among the saved that's why John the Baptist baptized people that was the mark of repentance so that okay you, you're you on the list uh, and uh, that uh, however and, and uh, Schweitzer well okay yeah so he was an apocalyptic preacher Schweitzer thought that was convincing, and he said, "You know, we're really faced with two and only two alternatives: thoroughgoing skepticism. We can't really know anything. That's uh, that's uh, uh, Vreda's view. W r e d e, if you want to read him, which you should. Uh, but uh, the other alternative is thoroughgoing eschatology." that that was the sum of the message of Jesus, uh, that he didn't intend to found a, a faith community, a church. Uh, he didn't lay down doctrines and stuff like that. It was all, uh, the end is near. Uh, and, and he refined it further. He, he, he thought that Mark and Matthew were historically accurate. He didn't think Luke and John were, they were too embellished and fictionalized. Oddly enough, Schleiermacher thought just the opposite, that if you wanted the real Jesus, you had to look at John and Luke, not Mark and Matthew. But anyway, um, looking at Mark and Matthew, Schweitzer said, you know, in Matthew 10, where Jesus sends out the 12, well, he does that in all the Gospels, right? He sends them out on a message to spread his summons to repentance. And they come back with the big news, "Hey, it went great, master," and so on and so on. Uh, Jesus must have been taken aback because what did he say in Matthew, not the other gospels, uh, when, when he sent him out, he said, uh, "You will when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for you won't have time to go through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes." But they did. Right, they came back, and the uh, the apocalypse had not dawned. And Schweitzer said, uh, this is reflected in uh, in the great book and movie, The Last Temptation of Christ, whose author uh, Nikos Kazantzakis was a buddy of Schweitzer's and was much influenced by. Him. Uh, Jesus had a big change of plans. He thought the world was going to end in a few weeks, and he would be transfigured into this supernatural redeemer figure. Uh, But uh, it didn't happen. And Jesus thought, well, you know, John the Baptist was simply executed in a mundane manner. Maybe the same thing is going to happen to me And that will mean God's plan is that I myself alone should take onto my shoulders the great tribulation. Then I will die and rise from the dead, and that's when the kingdom of God will come. And, of course, nothing happened. And uh, Schweitzer said Jesus tried to set the wheel of history rolling but was crushed beneath it. Uh, And and nonetheless, he stands as a, a living power, inspiring us to take up our crosses and carry on his work. Very powerful passage in the quest of the historical Jesus. Well, a lot of people, some more conservative than you would have expected, accepted this thoroughgoing eschatology preaching of Jesus And uh, for uh, some decades, you had uh, scholars saying, yeah, yeah, let's face it. Uh, Jesus predicted the soon coming end, and it sort of did happen. Uh, Alfred Loisy said Jesus predicted the kingdom of God, but what came instead was the church. Uh, Well, what, uh, he was Roman Catholic modernist. Uh, The liberal Protestant said, well, uh, yeah, you're right, but the, the church was the kingdom of God, just in an unanticipated sort of way. And so this enabled a lot of scholars like A.M. Hunter and T.W. Manson and many others to say, uh, okay, yeah, Schweitzer was right. It was eschatological apocalyptic, but very much like the preterists today. Uh, It wasn't what he or anybody else thought, and so they used apocalyptic language, but it was really pretty much business as usual. So Schweitzer was a a ground shaking figure, even when people like even when people think, nah, I I don't think Jesus was an apocalyptic prophet at all. I think he was just sort of a wandering wise man. That's what most of the fellows of the Jesus seminar thought, though some like uh, Richard Arthur thought, no, uh, he, he was. An apocalyptic prophet like uh, Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman, by the way, never participated in the Jesus Seminar, though he he was welcomed to do. Um, so even if you don't buy that, you you have to grant that Schweitzer was a giant in the evolution of life of Jesus scholarship. He also wrote about Paul, but I won't get into that. It didn't have as much effect but uh, almost everybody gives lip service to the other major thing Schweitzer did in New Testament scholarship pointing out how easy it was for very bright, well-informed scholars to uh, naively recreate a historical Jesus in their own image and uh, though people say yeah, he was right about that they're still doing it, right? maybe even more than ever jesus the vegan jesus who is gay jesus the galilean shaman jesus the liberal rabbi jesus the militant revolutionary jesus the magician and so on and so on and so on it never ends uh, and uh, but you know schweitzer was a prophet basically though not heated all the time one last one from mark froborn uh, is, or is that Frobum, I'm sorry, I can't read this thing today. Do you think that Mark may have used Josephus as a source? Oh, wait a second. Yeah, I'll answer this and then go back to part of the uh, Mark's uh, question that I skipped. Uh, do you think that Mark may have used Josephus as a source? The stories of Jesus, Ben, Ananias, Jesus uh Sapphius and Jesus ben Shaffat seem to have many parallels in Mark. Might some of these men be a basis for Wells's forgotten Jesus? I realize the dating a mark after Josephus is unconventional. Yes, but I think true. Uh I and uh and uh Theodore J. Whedon have uh explored this I think I'm the first to have said this in, in print, but but uh, Ted really made the case in great detail, much better than I did, uh, and gave me credit. Great guy. Um, we said that yes, uh, the Jesus Ananias story in Josephus is so similar, down to details, to the passion narrative of Jesus. He's wandering around Jerusalem predicting the destruction of the city and the temple. People don't like what they hear, and they bring him before the Roman procurator, uh, the, the Sanhedrin does, and he's, he has the guy flogged and says, I'm going to let him go, he's just a nut. Uh, and uh and and he interrogates him and among others says uh, uh other things he says where are you from an odd little detail that also appears in the gospels and uh all he will say is woe to jerusalem he won't answer any questions kind of like somebody else we know And then some years later, when uh, the Romans are laying siege to Jerusalem, he is up on the wall with the soldiers, and he's saying, Woe to Jerusalem! Woe to the temple! Uh, There's more than I'm saying, even. And then he says, And woe also to me! And he was crushed by a a flying stone from a, a catapult. Uh, it is it is so similar, and what isn't in uh, the story of Jesus ben Ananias, you can find in various other ancient stories of Simon bar Gioras Joseph of Giscala, um, Cleomenes, and, and so on. Uh, so yeah, I think so, and there are various reasons to think that the Gospels were written after Josephus, uh, though apologists don't like to hear that because they want the Gospels to be written, what does Jesus say in Superstar, my name will mean nothing uh, 10 minutes after I'm gone. Well, they want to say, oh, it was 10 minutes, all right, but they remembered. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, so. Uh, okay, back to Mark. Sorry about this. He says um, Can you think of anyone in modern times who has achieved world recognition in two completely unrelated areas of study, as did Schweitzer? In biblical scholarship and Old Testament I'm sorry, and, and keyboard music, not to mention his medical work, you know what he's referring to really is astounding. Schweitzer held four earned doctorates: one in philosophy, uh, one in New Testament scholarship, uh, a uh, m- an M.D. degree, and uh, he would, his musicology. Dissertation was uh, a history of Bach, and uh, he was such an accomplished uh, performer of Bach that he wrote letters to all the big cathedrals in Europe who are thinking of replacing their old organs, saying, no, don't do it because uh, Bach cannot be played as intended unless it's played on these old organs that you still have. So give me a date when I can come to your cathedral and I myself will repair them so that it can be done right. This guy was uh, a man of illimitable talent and energy. He was a superman. Uh, He slept like two or three hours a night and thought that's all anybody needed to sleep because uh, most people got drunk on sleep. Uh, What an amazing character. And uh, so uh, he was one of the rare ones. Uh, Who else? Well, Goethe was much like that, too, of course. But today, any contemporary people well i'm not sure if uh, anybody matches schweitzer though i think frank zindler might come the closest this guy is like a, a multi multilingual uh, scholar he knows all kinds of languages ancient and modern i remember a couple of years ago he was taking a course to brush up on his ancient lithuanian uh, he's he's astounding Uh, He's a biblical scholar. Uh, He knows it front to back. Uh, He's he's also, in effect, a doctor. When he was overseeing the treatment of his wife, uh, who did not survive, sadly, uh, he would give her doctors advice that they would follow, and they started calling him Dr. Zindler. Uh, he is a, a scientist, a chemist, and works uh, in, for uh, a university in uh, researching chemical patents and stuff. He strikes me as being uh, in the same league with Albert Schweitzer. Really astonishing. Uh, other people, uh, Nikola Tesla. Uh, he was, uh, of course, an inventor with... Uh, who made wild claims that were probably justified. Uh, his, some of his work was, uh, hidden and stolen because he would have made too made things too easy for people and too tough for commercial interests. Uh, let's see, uh, a couple of other ones, very different. I, not quite Schweitzer's, but how about, um, our pal Earl Doherty? Uh, this guy—he has no degree in biblical studies, but I always say to Carpers that read his books, they are his degree. The guy is is an amazing biblical scholar. Uh, he also designs games. I can't even play games. He's also a musician, and that ain't bad. And there's no doubt other things I can't remember. Um, uh actresses the uh the great hedy lamar uh she was in a lot of great flicks and she also uh invented um electronic devices that were used in the war against the nazis and are still used today uh and uh Uh, I think some of it had to do with the became the basis of Bluetooth and so on many decades later. Uh, Similarly, Natalie Portman, who's in, you know, lots of great flicks like the black swan and so on. And then a couple of the Thor movies. Uh, She, I love this. She plays a scientist and she is a scientist. Uh, she's an astrophysicist, I think, and an inventor. Uh, that just tickles me to no end. Somebody who who plays a, you know, they say, "Oh, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV." Well, I am a doctor, and that's why I play one on TV. Uh, so I have enormous respect for her. Uh, comic book writer Grant Morrison. This guy is a certifiable genius. Uh, he is a visionary in the literal sense. And uh, he uh, knows a lot of occult history. He's a fabulous and amazingly prolific writer of visionary comic books like the the uh, uh, the Final Crisis and the, the Justice League and uh, all manner of the. Uh, a Batman series just uh, it goes on and on and uh, he's a musician and he, he is a, a cartoonist an artist okay these aren't the same things Schweitzer was into but it's a rem- these are all m- remarkable examples of people that are polymaths they have so many different talents they're just exploding with talents sometimes you gotta wonder well wait a minute, here's a guy uh, in one field who has the same name as Albert Schweitzer. It's the same guy, and uh, there are some. I wish there were more. There's certainly more than I was able to think of off the top of my head. Okay, that's it for today's exciting episode of The Bible Geek. I hope you'll be back uh, with me soon for another um, hopefully non-boring interlude of biblical scholarship and speculation. As uh, so, I will see a man